sometimes we can solve our problems. Sometimes we can't, but we can change how we feel about it. Maybe we were feeling really angry about it. We can change our feelings about things. And then some things we can't change how we feel and we can't change the problem. We can't fix the problem. Welcome to Hope to Recharge podcast. Thank you for joining me here again today. Every week we meet here to break the stigma around mental health and to bring you insight and inspiration and lots of practical tips from personal stories or professionals around the world that share how they turn their journey of mental health into healing or to thriving. Together we will break the stigma one story at a time. And mental health together is always better. Thank you for joining me here today. I'm your host, Matana. Let's get started. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the leading online platform for therapy. You can access thousands of therapists one click away. Go check out BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Get 10% off your first month. Start your wellness now. In this episode of the Hope to Recharge podcast, we welcome Dr. Chayaliba Kobernik. Dr. Kobernik is a licensed clinical psychologist and the founder and director of the CBT-DBT Center. She received her doctorate at Long Island University Post Campus and completed training at New York's Presbyterian Hospital's Personality Disorders Unit, where she provided individual and group dialectical behavior therapy. She also provided cognitive behavior therapy and comprehensive DBT at Northwell Health's Behavioral Health College Partnership. Upon completing her training at Northwell Health, She participated in Rucker University's college counseling program, focusing her training on evidence-based trauma treatments, including prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy. Dr. Kobenik has advanced training in DBT and specialized training in adaptations of DBT for adolescents and children, and has also received specialized training in suicide prevention training, evidence-based approaches in addiction treatment, CBT for insomnia, motivational interviewing, psychological first aid, teaching and supervising CBT from the Beck Institute, behavioral parent management training, trauma art narrative therapy, prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, and trauma-focused CBT for children. She has co-led therapy groups on CBT for social anxiety and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for people with repeated episodes of depression. Dr. Kobenik's research interests include implementation and dissemination of evidence-based treatments, suicidality and non-suicidal self-injury, and education and training in health service psychology. She's published and presented on these topics at local and national levels. In this episode, we discuss radical acceptance what it is, how to achieve it, and how to implement it day-to-day, each and every day. And now your host of the Hope to Recharge podcast, Matana. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us here again today. We have a returning guest after the community has spoken and we listen. Not only do we listen to the community, we look at numbers. And the most popular episodes on Hope to Recharge, you're going to be floored. It has to do with borderline personality disorder. And I cannot believe that with everything that we shared, almost 200 episodes, that borderline personality disorder, DBT, are the most download episodes on our podcast, even more than my story. You would think like the first episode that people listen to is my story. No, they, it just shows that people are searching for something specific. So here again with Dr. Chaya Liba Kobernik. Thank you again for joining me here today. If you didn't listen, I'm just looking at the episode from last time we spoke to Dr. Chayaliba. It was episode number 157. If you didn't listen to it, go back and listen before you listen to this one, because I think it's a very important episode to hear the foundation of what DBT is. 
Dr. Khaliba is a specialist in DBT therapy in general. Thank you for joining me. I didn't even say thank you. Thank you for being here again today, doctor. Thank you for having me. So the reason why I asked Dr. Kobernick to come back again is because I'm getting a lot of questions on radical acceptance. What is radical acceptance? How do we work it? If I accept it, does it mean that it's not going to change? How did the word radical acceptance become so trendy lately? And do we understand what it means? And does acceptance mean forgiveness even to somebody, to ourselves, to our situation? Can we change our situation when we accept it? So many questions. I did a tremendous amount of research on radical acceptance, and I actually gave even a mastermind class on it. But the more I learn about it, the more I realize that I can learn more about it. So I decided to go to the experts, the ones that really work with our clients on this topic. And we want to discuss radical acceptance. Before we deep dive into that, there's a very small little thing that I want to ask Dr. Kobernick. And I reached out to her, I think it was this week or last week. I get a lot of questions from parents of teens that are struggling with identity crisis, suicidal thoughts, cutting, not fitting in the box, highly sensitive people, which are not diagnosed as highly sensitive people yet, but their emotions are racing, extreme emotions. And the parents are like, what do I do? What do I do? How do I address this? How do I help them? They're in therapy, but how do I help them as a parent? So I reached out to Dr. Kobernick and I said, what do you do with families? Like, how can we help them? How can we support them? So I'm giving over the mic to you. Sure. Okay. Wow. So two really important topics. I'm going to try to do one and then we'll go into the other one. Yes. Let's start with radical acceptance. What I usually say when I start off talking about radical acceptance is that is the hardest skill that we ask of clients. We ask it anyway, but it's the hardest skill that we're going to ask of you. And starting just from that premise, I think is an important place to start from because we're acknowledging that this is needed. This is important. This is a really vital skill within the whole DBT framework and really outside of DBT as well, just life requires this acceptance piece. And I'll explain more what I mean. And it's impossibly hard. It is very hard. So can we start with that, with just accepting that this skill is going to be challenging? And so what I usually encourage people to start with is more like day-to-day acceptances, like accepting that I got to work late or accepting that my food burnt. Working on accepting those things can be hard enough. And then we can also make efforts to work on those bigger topic issues, those things that are the more long-term things that need to be accepted as well, that are more of a life work rather than something I'm going to be able to accept right in this minute. Now, why is radical acceptance so important? That's pretty much the foundation of DBT stands for dialectical behavior therapy. The nuance of DBT is the idea of dialectics. That's a a philosophical approach of having multiple truths, of having two sides to the coin, of learning to live in a world of gray. And the main dialectic in DBT is acceptance and change. Now, what that means is that we fully accept in every moment ourselves, our clients, reality, 100%. And at the same time, we work towards change. Both of those need to be there. Now, acceptance does not mean I accept because I want to change. It means I accept. Now, this moment. Yes, 100% acceptance. And I also simultaneously can work towards change. By accepting, that opens the box for me to then be able to work towards change. But the goal is not change. The goal of acceptance is not change. The goal of acceptance is acceptance. We actually, radical acceptance is taught within our distress tolerance module which is such a funny contrast. The first half of distress tolerance module is all crisis management skills. It's how to basically survive the crisis without making life worse. These are not our most earth shattering skills. These are skills like 
distract yourself, self-soothe, like ways to get through a crisis without making your life worse. These are not really like our major change skills, learn something new. Wow. Something groundbreaking here. And then we contrast that with our reality acceptance skills, with our radical acceptance skills. And why are those two put together? Because both are needed in order to tolerate distress. Radical acceptance is not about change. It's not about making our lives better or different. It's when things can't change. And when we start off DBT, one of the things we teach right in the beginning is that there are four ways to solve a problem. You can fix the problem. You can change how you feel about the problem. You can accept the problem or you can make it make worse. Those are your choices. Can you repeat that? Sure. Four ways of solving a problem. You can fix the problem, change how you feel about the problem, accept the problem or make it worse. I feel like the first three are very connected and the fourth is like an outsider. You can either work with the three and they are mingling together and they can coexist maybe. And the fourth is just, okay, fine. If you don't do the three, you're going to make it worse. Yeah, yeah. And when I teach make it worse, I usually say you can do nothing. Parentheses make it worse. And they are different because there are some things that we can change. Sometimes there's a problem. And if we do great problem solving, we can actually fix the problem. Okay. We have a problem where we are constantly late for things. We can learn some time management skills, get a, a scheduler, get a planner. We can work it out where we're going we're gonna to learn all kinds of tricks and we're going to solve our problem. We have a problem. I want a puppy. My parents won't let me get a puppy, but we can learn a communication strategy for how to ask appropriately. We can get the neighbor to dog sit once a month, whatever. We can get a, a solution to our problem. Maybe. Sometimes we can solve our problem. Sometimes we can't, but we can change how we feel about it. We can change, maybe we were feeling really angry about it and we can actually, that's our whole emotion regulation section. We can change our feelings about things. And then some things we can't change how we feel and we can't change the problem. We can't fix the problem. For example, a death. For example, a death. For example, a current reality. If I am single right now and I want to be married right now and there's nothing I can do in this moment, in this moment, I cannot make myself be married. In this moment, I want to have a child and I don't have a child yet. In this moment, I want to get good grades in school and I don't have good grades in school right now. Some of those things can change. So that's where that dialectic comes in. Because in this moment, I don't have good grades. I got my report card today. I got straight C's. And for me, I'm not happy with that. I want that to be different. In this moment, I have C's. That's what I have. I can work towards change in the future. But in this moment, I cannot change the fact that right now I have seats. I can go, I can yell at all the teachers that they're the worst people ever. Mm-hmm. I can fight with them. I can yell at, at my parents that I'm not going to school ever again. None of that changes the reality. So, it, so in this moment, there may be things that I have to choose to accept. Right? If I go and yell at teachers, I go and yell at my parents. All that does for me is make my situation worse, not better. So I can accept the current reality as it is the present moment as it is. And I can also make steps towards change in the future. So there are certain things that do need to be accepted. Things that I cannot change in this moment need to be accepted. Limitations on the future. Like I will never be, I don't know. I will never be. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Um, Someone that really want to have, wants to have children and she couldn't because she had to have a hysterectomy. She will never have her own biological children. If she tried and she was infertile or whatever she had fertility issues, she will never be able to have her own children carried in her body. Yeah. It's like a form of death because a death, you can't bring them alive. You can't bring the the dead alive. So that's something that won't change. Yeah. Yeah. And these limitations on the future, the one I typically think of is like, we're all about going to die. So that's like a limitation on our future. That's a perfect example of, of of a limitation on the future. There are some things about the future I cannot change. There are a lot more things about the present that I cannot change. So the present is how it is. And the past, I can't change at all because it already happened. 
Right. And a lot of us spend a lot of time not accepting the past because who wants it to have been the way it was? And that really doesn't serve us. It doesn't really serve us to be wishing the past were different or wishing the present were different because it's not. When there's things to do, there's things to do. God bless. Go. Problem solve. Change your, like change your situation. Absolutely. Sometimes you can't. But the best way, if there is a way, so let's say, let's take the C example. It's the end of the year. A student really worked hard. She's so depressed. She got C's on everything. She's feeling very lack of motivation. She shouldn't go into radical acceptance in order to get A's next semester. She should do it just because right now she needs to feel better within the reality of the C's, no matter if the A's are going to come next year or not. Right now, to feel the way and accept the way she feels with the C's. And only when she can accept can she see all the possibilities, how maybe in the future she can get to the A's, maybe, but it's not in order to get to the A, right? Is that what you're saying? Not in order to get to the A. And I'll even make it clearer. I I like to teach radical acceptance with this concept. Pain is a part of life. Part of being human is that we experience pain. That's just the way the world was created. Part of existence is that we feel pain sometimes. Okay. Now, some of us have major pains and some have small pains and and everything in between, but we all experience pain plus non-acceptance. Is misery? Equals suffering. Okay. Suffering is optional. We don't have to suffer in this world. We do have to experience pain. We don't have to suffer. And we accept our pain, then we experience freedom. So if I can accept, I got C's. I don't like it. I don't wish it was that way. I don't agree that it should have been that way. And I accept that this is how it is. This is how it is right now. Now I am free to say, I want this to be different in the future. And I'm going to make plans to get a study partner over the summer or do a tutor or do a class or whatever. I can do whatever I want. But as long as I'm stuck in, no, it shouldn't be like this. Fighting it. Not fair that it's like this. And I'm not accepting of reality, my pain and my reality. Now I'm suffering. Now I'm just sitting around suffering. We can't accept with existing with anger or frustration or resentment or lack of fairness, they can't coexist? It's a little tricky question because emotions are always valid. You're always entitled to your emotion. So if you feel angry, you're allowed to feel angry. You're always allowed to feel your emotion. But if anger is coming from a place of it's not fair, it shouldn't be like this, then that's going to be a non-acceptance. How do we know when we are in acceptance? What does it feel like? Yeah. Oh, that's such a great question. Acceptance usually brings a sadness, a deep sadness, depending on what we're accepting. Like I said, there's accepting that I, that I burnt dinner is a little bit different than accepting a traumatic childhood. But that's a little different. I, I want to give an example because I think a lot of people are yeah. going to relate to it. Let's say a, a mental illness diagnosis mm-hmm. that we were like a, a parent seeing their child struggle and then they go and they get a diagnosis of, let's say, bipolar and they don't know what it is or borderline and they don't know what it is. And they're like in this shock and they're frustrated because they don't understand and they're in a fear of the future and what's going to be with this child and how are they going to survive? And no, I don't have the tools. And we're like in this like a state of shock. How do we go into radical acceptance when we get a diagnosis? It could be cancer. It could be infertility. Let's go to diagnosis that we're not ready for. Absolutely. And so any radical acceptance from that small birth to dinner example to these major, to a major diagnosis, to a history, like a past experience that was very unacceptable in a lot of ways, any of those things when we practice acceptance is going to come with sadness. Sadness is the emotion of grief and loss. Sadness comes when we've lost something. Now, of course, the major example of sadness is grieving a death, but really there are so many kinds of losses that we can experience. A diagnosis 
is a loss of an expectation. I expected my life to go this way and now it's going this way. My, I expected to have a certain role and, and it went differently. I'll never forget when I was like 38 weeks pregnant with twins during grad school. And I had this just moment of radical acceptance and a deep sadness hit me because I had a role as a certain level of achievement and, a, and an ability. And with my body saying, no, you can't do that now. Now, of course, it was for something wonderful. And it was also a major loss for me, loss of a previous role. And that needed to be grieved. And once that deep sadness comes, it's often followed by a deep calm. The sadness here is not depression. It's not an unhelpful, all-consuming sadness. Every emotion is helpful in its right place. Sadness is helpful when it helps us to grieve a loss. And radical acceptance is about grieving a loss. Sometimes, sometimes it can be something small, sometimes it can be something big, but it's grieving a loss. So when we have the opportunity to grieve a loss, that is going to come with this deep sadness of what we expected, what we wanted, what's not. And that sadness will pass because that's helpful sadness. It allows us to go through this process and then we're ultimately relieved by this deep calm. And then what happens? So we have the sadness. It's no longer that like anger. How could it be trying to find solutions? We're not in the finding solution or rationalizing or having conversations with ourselves or with somebody else. We're just like after a war, like just like fatigue and tired and just like recovering with the pain. Now we can move. Now, the truth is acceptance is like a mindfulness practice where our minds tend to wander and we just choose to bring them back to our intention of focus for our practice and the mind wanders again and we bring them back. Radical acceptance tends to work the same way. So once I've accepted, my mind can wander from acceptance and I have to choose to turn the mind back to acceptance oftentimes over and over and that's okay. That's to be expected. So I can radically accept and then drift and come back and drift. So that is is very common. And at the same time, it's also Radical acceptance, the the next thing that's going to happen is a freedom. Now I'm free to move. So I've accepted, okay, okay. I expected that my child was going to kind of move in this direction. And now I've just gotten this big diagnosis and and it's scary. And I don't know what it means. And and I've accepted that this is where it's at right now. This is what's going on right now. Okay. What do I want to do? Now I can move. Now I can choose to, okay, maybe I'll speak to other mothers who have gone through this, or maybe I'll uh, go back to the doctor who gave the diagnosis with more of my questions and I'll feel a little clearer to think things through. Maybe I'll journal about it. Whatever I want to do, I'm now free to move because I'm not fighting reality anymore. When we're fighting reality, we're stuck in fighting reality. When someone is saying, I don't know if I accepted it, what are some questions that you work with your clients and to, to see, are we still in denial? Are we still in resentment? Are we still in a grieve mode or are we in acceptance? Like, how do we do this little check-in with ourselves? Yeah. If we're still fighting reality, we're still in this place of constantly battling that it shouldn't be this way. You'll hear the shoulds come up. In your mind. Yeah. Or I'll hear clients say subtly sometimes they're shoulds. And when we can redirect the shoulds to this is how it is, that can sometimes be the the shift there. So we're checking in with, are we really present with this is how it is? Or are we still fighting for reality to be different? When you work with your clients on radical acceptance, is it a long-term thing or is it one or two sessions or is it part of a session? Is it other components of DBT that are so important to be together that I want people to understand how important this is and how it's done. 
So can you walk us through a process? So let's say somebody comes into your um, practice and say, okay, fine. I'll give you an example. The person that someone just told me, the person that I was dating is getting engaged and I'm very upset. I can't believe it. I'm broken. I thought he'll come back to me. We took a break. I thought it didn't work out. That's it. It's done. And and they're grieving. Yeah. How long does this process happen? And is it a whole session, a few sessions? Do they have to do other things? Is it alone time also after they leave your office? Yeah, that's a great question. So it really depends on what stage a person's at. Sometimes people come into treatment and they want to work on the things that they're not accepting right now, maybe a previous trauma or something. And at the same time, they have some significant safety behavior, behavioral concerns that I'm going to say, yeah, we're not, we can't go there yet. We're going to deal with this first. And once we've gotten those behaviors all more stable, then we're going to, we're going to bring this piece in. And I'm oftentimes bringing radical acceptance in in small ways over time until we're going to get to those bigger issues. And once we enter zone of, yeah, we can work on the bigger issues, that can take time. That can take time because those are things that we've spent, we possibly have spent years yearning. Yeah, that things should be different. I cannot live so long as this traumatic thing happened. But guess what? This traumatic thing happened. That's a major conflict to be living in. So to, to resolve that is going to take a, a it's going to take some work, and that can be really a process. Then that could take a couple months, and and that's a process for for this these major things that we have no acceptance around or very little acceptance around these major topics. Somebody who comes in who's engaged in work and is now experiencing that let's say this person that they were dating is just got engaged and that's very painful. If they have learned radical acceptance, they understand conceptually how it works. We can talk about what that means to them, what the loss is, we can basically attend to our feelings of sadness, give space for sadness. I'll oftentimes give a homework. I want you to go feel your sadness every day this week for 15 minutes at a timer, sit down and just feel your sadness, feel where you feel it in your body. What does that look like? Yeah. What does it feel like in your body? Where is it showing up? What kinds of sad thoughts are coming? How does sadness feel to you? Can you feel like a wave that gets bigger and then also gets smaller and just noticing how it's showing up for you and just giving space for it. You might feel an urge to cry. You might feel an urge to crawl up small, whatever it is, just noticing sadness, feel like filling you up and allowing that space. And over time, you're going to need it less and less because the sadness is going to do its job. It just wants its attention. It just wants its space. And you let it go and let yourself have that space for it. It will pass. It doesn't, it doesn't last forever, but then it can come back again. It can. Yeah. Let's say you bump into them in the supermarket or something like that. I actually met with somebody that she actually got engaged. She was so excited. And the day of the wedding, she could not breathe. She could not breathe. And probably every year, the day of the wedding until she finds her, like until she really reaches happiness and moves on in life and whatever that's going to be a moment or like a day of someone's death or a miscarriage or somebody that gets divorced and they wanted to be married. These moments come back so you can accept it. What I learned about radical acceptance, don't think that it's all the time, constantly. As you said before, it comes in and out and it drifts in and out. And it doesn't mean that you're not in radical acceptance. You just have to choose to come back to it once you have the tools. Yeah, it's coming to a fork in the road of acceptance versus non-acceptance and choosing the road of acceptance over and over again. And I will also say though, once you've done that big work of feeling your sadness, grieving your loss, it can come back. You're right. There can be reminders. You bump into them in the grocery store for sure. Absolutely. 
it's different. It just doesn't last as long and it doesn't, that it doesn't last as long. It's not as intense. It's- exactly. And, and that's with a lot of things like in healing in general that we try to notice like, okay, fine. No one's perfect. Even the best therapist, even Marshall Linnan, I'm sure she goes through it. She has all the tools. She teaches the tools, but she comes back to center fast because she has the tools and she knows how to practice it. So how long are we shattered for? How long are we not functioning for? How long are we walking in a cloud? How long do we feel like we have no hope? My biggest question is with radical acceptance, is radical acceptance the road to hope of happy, healthy living? Is it connected to hope? Or is it only because you need to survive and without radical acceptance, you're just going to go back? Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you want to get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? Many people ask me, what did I do in order to create this wellness that I'm living in? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset, boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about, forgiveness, self-forgiveness and forgiveness to others. Essential for healing. If you want to work one-on-one with me in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of, click the link below in the show notes. It's a custom-made program for you, one-on-one with me. We will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being. Click the link below. Looking forward to working with you. And now enjoy the rest of the episode. Is radical acceptance the road to hope of happy, healthy living? Is it connected to hope or is it only because you need to survive and without radical acceptance, you're just going to go back? That's such a great question. There's this concept in the, the treatment called ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy. They talk a lot about, obviously, acceptance and commitment therapy is going to have some overlap with acceptance and DBT. They're using the same concepts here. They talk about how acceptance of our emotions, rather than fighting with our emotions, leads to this such expansive freedom. And Russ Harris, who's a big writer and speaker in the ACT world, talks about, or he has a book rather called The Happiness Trap. And talks about the idea that having our Declaration of Independence, the, the, the pursuit of happiness yeah. is a right. As if happiness is a destination. Happiness is not a destination. Happiness is an emotion, just like sadness, just like anxiety, just like anger. These are all emotions. And living a happy life is going inc- to have to include that gamut of emotion, including the uncomfortable ones. Because how could you possibly feel happy if you don't have any space to grieve a loss and feel sad right. or to feel afraid when there's something dangerous happening? That fear is going to protect you. You need that. Or to feel guilt when we did something wrong or coming up to the high holidays. If you didn't feel guilt for doing things wrong, how would you repair for your wrongs? That guilt motivates us. Each emotion serves a function. So building a happy life does not mean feeling one emotion all the time. It means feeling the gamut of emotion. It's the goal of DBT to be able to navigate through these emotions in a healthy manner, in a flowy manner, in a mindful manner? The goal of DBT is to build a life worth living. That's the goal in DBT. That's our goal in DBT always. And to build a life. That's Marsha's goal of creating DBT, but that's what she, 
But is it really the goal of DBT? Yeah, that's our goal. What if I have a life worth living already, but I want DBT skills? You can learn DBT skills. That doesn't mean that you're, that you necessarily are. When someone's coming for full DBT or comprehensive DBT, I think we spoke about this in the last podcast, what, what that looks like. The goal of DBT treatment is to build life worth living. If you're learning DBT skills to help you with your depression treatment or to help you with your anxiety treatment, that can be a great addition and can help you with navigating all kinds of things because the DBT skills are just really well packaged, really well explained, go through a lot of different important life skills. So yeah, so the, so the goal of DBT is building a life worth living. That means knowing what my values are, what my life worth living would look like, not having difficult emotions take place of the long-term success of my life or the long-term things that are important to me. You're saying a life worth living. I'm saying, is it in order to navigate through life easier with the skills? Yeah. So that's a big part of it. Absolutely. Because if I am constantly trying to avoid my emotions, which is true for many people coming to DBT, I'm going to be in this constant non-acceptance of pain, which means I'm going to be in constant suffering. Mm -hmm. I'm in a constant misery. And in order to escape from that or to get out from that, what I want to be able to do is to experience my emotions fully, to experience the, the, the gamut of emotions, to have mindfulness so I can notice uh, emotion, not be in this constant zero and a hundred range, zero, a hundred, zero, a hundred, but I want to be able to live in twenties and 75s and be able to experience my emotions in more of a range and to be able to manage control and influence my emotions, to be able to sometimes hit a hundred and know how to navigate that. All those are pieces that we're, we're trying to get to in DBT. So I'm going back to what you said before about happiness. So happiness is not a goal, right? It's just an emotion that comes along with everything else. So when we say we want to lead a happier life, what does that mean? A happier life? I don't know what that means, but I think what people mean by that, maybe less sadness moments, but more happy emotions coming through life. I I think what we mean by that is that they want to feel less discomfort. And I think what Mm. they, or, or what would be helpful to mean by that is to be okay with experiencing emotions that are more uncomfortable and accepting that sometimes the most helpful thing for us, that sometimes we need to experience uncomfortable emotions and being learning to be okay with that and learning to be fully present for our pleasant mm. emotions also. Yeah. This is, I know you're into the gratitude and this is where I think gratitude is a huge piece. When I can mindfully enjoy my life, because most of life is not as painful as we believe it is. Most of life is waking up in the morning, watching a sunrise, seeing our child play, eating a nice banana. Most of life is not that bad. A lot of life is not that bad. And if I can mindfully attend to those experiences, gratitude soars and that's that piece. But it's a choice. Absolutely a choice. Absolutely. Where are we hanging out? Are we hanging out where where life is not working out for us or where it is working out? But it's again, the emotions and their emotions are real. So what I hear a lot, yeah, so very nice. So my toes are wiggling and I took a shower and I went for a walk and I swallowed and I'm not on a ventilator and I'm not on a feeding tube and my eyes can see, but I feel dead inside. So what good does that make me feel? Like I'm still sad. So yippee do, how am I feeling grateful? I do not want to be alive right now because I feel dead inside. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't care that my whole body is working, functioning. If I feel dead, I am not going to feel grateful. Yeah. And so that's a mindfulness question. Is my mindful attention, is my full attention and energy on this internal sensation of deadness or is it on my wiggling toes? Can I redirect my attention over and over again? Not saying that's easy. I'm just saying that is a choice where my attention goes. 
that I keep coming back to, I feel dead inside. Of course, I'm going to keep feeling dead inside, even despite all the facts can be that my toes are wiggling and the sun is shining and all these things. And I don't care because I'm focused on this. What if I could focus on all those other pieces? What if I could redirect my attention to be present with all those other pieces? So I want to go back to what you said before about feeling the pain. My yoga teacher, Devira, taught me this. And I was running to healers and therapists and voodoos and everything. Just get rid of my pain. And I was on medication. I'm like, get rid of this sadness, this like lump in my heart that I can't breathe anymore. It's so sad. And she's like, just sit with it. I'm like, are you out of your mind? Sit with it. I'm not sitting with this. Why would I sit with it? And she said, just sit with it so it can leave you. Just stop fighting it. So I guess my question to you, if someone's saying, listen, I'm feeling like I want, I, I want to die by suicide. I feel dead inside. I don't want to feel my wiggling toes. I don't want, I don't care that I can do a Shavasana now. I don't care because it's not giving me any emotion. So when you're saying choose to leave it, how do we know when it's good to leave it and when it's not? Because you said set aside 15 minutes or whatever. That's what an example you gave. How do we know when it's a good time to stay in the sadness? And when are we supposed to drift our attention to gratitude moments that we're forcing in the beginning? And then it leads to more and more. Yeah. Yeah. So the, my question is always, is it serving you? Is, is that sadness serving you? Is that sadness helping you to grieve a loss? Or is it a depressed sadness that is just sucking the life out of you and you're totally trapped, consumed by this sadness that's not doing anything for you? Or is it a sadness that's serving a, a function? There was a loss. If you, you were dating this person, there was an expectation that, they, that it might work out in the future and they got engaged. That was a loss. Okay. You transitioned from a big career into being a stay-at-home mom. That's a loss. You had a diagnosis. You got you received a diagnosis, you never received a diagnosis. That's a loss. When there is a loss, there needs to be grieving. There needs to be sadness. When we're sitting in our pain and we're stuck in it, that's a non-acceptance. Where we're stuck, we're consumed by it. How do we know how when to drift out? It's so hard to know when we're giving the sadness the right amount of attention and not running away from it with throwing gratitude, uh, going for you yourself just said when you were giving your example, you were running to healers, right? Take it away, make it stop. And when we're saying that, yeah, fix it, take it away, make it stop. Yeah, that is non acceptance. That is non acceptance. Fix it, make it stop. No, we don't we can't fix these things. So when a person says to me, I'm so depressed, I don't want to practice gratitude. I don't want to see any so just so you okay, that's a choice. That's your choice. You're entitled. You don't have to. And then that, and then what happens? Are they sitting in their sadness or is that suffering or is that attention? Sounds to me like suffering. That sounds like I don't want to. I just want to sit and be miserable right now. But what if they say I can't? So can't is a, is a, a tough word because that's, that takes away our choice. So mm. if you can't, then you have no choice. And that's really sad. What if we could switch it to I'm choosing not to right now. And then address it in a half an hour. Yeah. Oh, so you're saying do small increments, check in with yourself. If you feel overwhelmed now and you don't want to be mindful of anything else, but your pain, that's fine. That's fine. But then also recognize that's your choice, right? You are making a choice. Right. And so you can sit in that, come back to me in, in 10 minutes and tell me that you want things to be different because you're in pain and you don't want to feel this way and you don't have to feel this way. There are choices. Right. Fascinating. I think it's such a fine line between knowing when we can give ourselves permission to leave the pain and when it's important to sit in the pain. As somebody was telling me, I, I, I don't even know how to deal with it because I keep on running away from it. And I, that's how I dealt with pain. I run away and now I can't run away. So what do I do? Because I can't run now. So how do I run away from my pain? My, my only coping mechanism was running. So what now? Sit with it. Maybe you're not supposed to run, but at the same time, 
you're saying also try to be mindful and bring other things into our life that are not consuming the pain. It's hard. It's hard. And that's, it's hard. and I love the way you said, like, yeah. start with the burning food, the missing the bus, the not getting the phone call back that you wanted, the lunch that you were looking forward to with friends, the trip that you were planning that didn't work out. Corona. Oh my God. Corona is like a one big radical acceptance in the world. Like how many things were grieved during Corona? from reality, from ourselves, yeah, so many, right. It's yeah. constant. And how many times do we practice radical acceptance during a day during Corona? Right. It's so I like that you said, start small and notice it, be mindful about it and, and notice that it comes with a sadness. I like that you said it comes with a sadness. I'm just wrapping up in what you're saying, but you said, notice that even once you accept, it can revisit the sadness again. It goes back just but by choice, you bring it back and then notice that the, the, the sadness and the pain gets less and shorter, hopefully. And that's radical acceptance. And, and the goal should never be in order to change the goal. And it should be in order to accept. Oh, yay! I got it right. Yeah, yeah. I'm a good student. I know we have only a few minutes. I, I have another question that I'm going to wrap this up because I think a lot of people that are going to listen to this are people that are highly sensitive people or people that are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. One of the things that I hear, I can't even tell you how many times because it's just over and over and over. The fear of therapists leaving the client and the client, they go through therapy with this fear. What if my therapist leaves? How am I going to survive? Or the therapist is leaving, going to maternity leave, moving to Australia, quitting, whatever it is, switching careers. How do they move on with life? How do they move on? So why is it something that's important to use radical acceptance here in order to, to move beyond this? Today's episode is sponsored by EmotionallySensitive.com. Are you struggling with overwhelming intense emotions? Check out EmotionallySensitive.com's online DBT skills course today. Again, that's EmotionallySensitive.com. Absolutely, radical acceptance is huge. And I'm just laughing because um, I'm soon going on maternity leave. And so we've had to deal with this with a bunch of my clients and, um, or well, my clients, but particularly some as, as in Herder. And I think it's almost, it's such a great opportunity to have a healthy leaving because so many people I work with and, and it sounds like people you're speaking with, a therapist leaving me means something more than a therapist leaving me. They don't care about me. I am nobody to them. Yeah. I could be dead if all those things. And many of these people have had abandonment, had rejection, right? This is not rejection. I am not leaving you because I don't care about you because I'm not there for you because there's something wrong with you. That has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it at all. And that can be an an awesome learning opportunity that I can have a healthy goodbye or a healthy separation huge deal. So use it as an opportunity to have a healthy separation. And for therapists, give them enough time. Give them time and discuss it. To deal with it. And also discuss it in that way. Discuss it in a way of, I still care about you. I'm going to still make sure that you get set up the best way possible. Is it really the therapist's responsibility to give that reassurance? Or is that just an extra bonus? The work is really on the client to find the tools. Even if the therapist is, good luck. I like, that's not my job. That's like an extra bonus. Of course, somebody that's practicing DBT will not do that to a client because that's like the MO of DBT care, compassion, care, understanding, especially with abandonment. But 
isn't really empowering the client to say, okay, tell me what was the opposite truth of that? What's something else you could tell yourself? Yeah, no, I think that having that conversation between therapist and client, this is not about rejection. This is not about abandonment. This is not about anything other than sometimes relationships have a pause or have an end Mm -hmm. and they don't, it doesn't say anything about you. It doesn't Mm -hmm. say anything about me. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say anything about the relationship even. Mm -hmm. It's only a reality. Like you said, I'm switching careers. I'm on maternity leave. It's summer vacation, whatever it is. It's nothing to do with you in particular. It's not personal. And it doesn't mean that you don't matter to me. And it doesn't mean that I don't value you. And it doesn't mean that I don't wish you the best. And I hope and I wish it could have been different. It's very yeah, like yeah. I I wanted to address it because I know that a lot of people that working with DBT are going to listen to this episode and I am sure they struggle with this a lot. So I wanted to get it out there. So let's give a few seconds, a few minutes. I'm going to give it three minutes for you to address how you help teens sure. and parents. That's a business. I know. Business. So just tell me what you do and then that people can reach yeah. out to you directly. Great. When should they use DBT? And when is mm-hmm. DBT not for them? When they're starting to see change with their child, that they're having more anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, self-harm. Yeah. Beautiful. A uh, great question. So with teens, it's a little bit different. We're not looking. And I think in general, DBT got the name of borderline personality. And even sometimes I'll suggest DBT to a parent and they'll say, oh my goodness, how dare you suggest that? You're saying my child's borderline personality disorder. It's nothing to do with borderline personality disorder. And I, I think we discussed this right. last time. And it's not, it never had anything to do right. with borderline personality disorder. It always had to do with uh, uh, intense big emotions or emotionally sensitive people who were raised in an invalidating environment. And that was the recipe for where we are. And so it's going to look a little different in teens. And in teens, we just say we're looking for multiple problems. If a teen is sinking into a depression and it's a true depression, they don't necessarily need DBT. DBT is a very comprehensive treatment with many different parts to it because clients have multiple problems. When a client, when a teen is starting to sink into a depression or is having an anxiety disorder, very often, straight up CBT can be super, super effective. Three months, six months, obviously no promises, but really can work very well and, is, and you don't need that full We're seeing teens who have multiple problems, suicidality, self-harm, disorder eating, depression and anxiety and panic attacks and trouble sleeping, and they're struggling at school. When there's multiple problems going on, DBT is an excellent treatment. For teens, there is a slight change, which is that we include family. Now with adults, I love to include family whenever I'm entitled to. Whenever an adult will let me touch their family, I always do. Family is always a huge player. For teens in particular though, we must work with families whenever possible because family is where so much is happening. And to try to expect a teen to make change, to make these changes on their own is unrealistic. If we can work with the family system, it is so much more realistic that we're going to be able to see the kinds of differences we want to see. So we include at least one parent in our multifamily DBT skills group. That's the model of DBT adapted for teens is to include a parent in skills group. And we also try to have family sessions whenever possible. Sometimes it depends on the family. Sometimes I'll recommend parent only sections, sessions uh, once a month or or once every other week or something like that. But we're including parents in the work because this is going to make things work so much better, so much faster, Mm -hmm. so much more effectively and last longer. And when I get to only work with a teen by themselves, it's so much more unrealistic. My work is so much harder. So when parents are engaged, it's, it's a huge game changer. And do you work with the parents alone also? And you give them like guidance alone? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Very often that's the case. And parents will often have their own questions. Like how do I handle when the child says this mm-hmm. or when this comes up? We talked about this skill and I'm not sure how that applies or how those kinds of things are really important and helping parents at the stage to make their home work better. Mm-hmm. How do I navigate if my child is threatening suicide? It seems logical that I should do this, but 
is that really working, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So working with the parents on those issues is a huge deal. And so when we're working with under 14, it's a very parent heavy model. DBT is very parent heavy mm-hmm. for, for, for pre-high school children. And that, yeah, that, that model is, yes, we want to teach children skills, but expecting them to be able to use skills without the home mm-hmm. going through a major shift and making the environment what we call change ready is extremely unrealistic. So we work heavy with parents before we will even see a child. And 14, 15 year old, 16 year old. Yeah. Then we do that team model. We're working with the teens. We're incorporating parents as much as the parents are willing to be incorporated. As much as the teen is willing also, right? That's also true. That is also true. Yeah, that is also true. Some teens do not want me to talk to their parents. And I'm always just, you know, bringing it back to, this is why I think it would be effective. I'm very into autonomy for my clients. And you are, and even teens, you are entitled to your say and what you want. I'm going to make my recommendations as the therapist of what I think is going to be most effective for you based on mm-hmm. clinical experience and research. Mm-hmm. And then it's your decision to tell me what you want. If you don't want me to talk to your parents, I'm not going to talk to your parents. I'm just going to keep explaining why I think that might actually make the difference in what you're, what you're saying is not working for you. Okay. I'm just going to ask one last question regarding group. I know there's teen group, right? Multifamily. Yeah. Does group work with children as well? Or is it only once they hit 18 or like 16, 17, 18? So 14 and up, we have teens and their parents or sometimes siblings. I always say whoever you want to come is welcome to come. Anybody from the family, we only consider it more helpful. So anybody the teen lets can join us as well. So sometimes we'll have siblings join. I'm always, I'm waiting for a grandparent, but I haven't gotten a grandparent. Yet. But what about group, like group therapy, the DBT groups? So like with strangers. Yeah. So it's a bunch, like a bunch of teens and their families come together for skills. Group. Oh, a bunch, like different mm-hmm. teens and different yeah. families are joining together. For skills group. Wow. And it works. Yeah. That's how DBT was adapted for teens. When DBT oh, was adapted for teens, it was adapted as what we call a multifamily group model. So we include oh. multiple families coming to group. And do you do that? Yeah. 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 We have, we have a group that's for Orthodox Jewish girls and their mm-hmm. families. Anybody that wants to ask Dr. Kobernick, we're going to put the information, how to reach you. So what's the easiest way? Is it email? Email's great. We also, you can just check out our website. We have a contact page on our website. Okay. The, the website is the cbtdbtcenter.com. CBD. Oh, wow. So it's a combination. CBT and DBT. We offer both because not everybody needs DBT. Okay. Okay, great. Okay, good. So the link is in the show notes. I'm sure this is going to get a lot of questions. And I'm so grateful that you gave me your time to zone in onto this topic of radical acceptance and, and touching on teens because it just keeps on coming up. And I think it's a word, it's a term that's used a lot and it needs, we need to understand what it means. We, we needed to, and I think you did such a fabulous job explaining it. Is there anything else you want to leave us with before we say goodbye? I want to remind you with the radical acceptance that it is the hardest skill we ask of clients. We ask it anyway. And it's the hardest skill we ask. So be gentle with yourself. Does it get easier with time? On individual, if I practice radical acceptance of an individual topic, that topic will get easier. With each time I practice radical acceptance, that muscle gets flexed and acceptance becomes easier and easier. Absolutely. And you know how to go there faster and the conversation and you don't always have to do it with a therapist. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Depends on the topic and depends on how much work you've done on that topic. Absolutely. You can get to a place where you can be in radical acceptance much of the time. And of course, there's going to be things that take you off of the course and you can bring yourself back on. Thank you so much for your wisdom, for your time and um, for your great work that you, you really share with the world and 
creating better humans and humans that can navigate with their emotions with ease and lead to a happier state of being, not a happier life, but a happier state of emotion. They, they should come more. I like that. It's not a goal. It's an emotion. Thank you very much for joining me here, yeah. doctor. And I hope to see you soon. Okay, great. Take care. Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. And Mental Health Together is better. You being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. So don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time.